Personally, I've been very excited about starting the book of Malachi. It's the first time I've taught through the book of Malachi on a Sunday morning. I believe the book of Malachi is rich and it is truly relevant for our time today in our church and in the Church of America. As we understand the history of why this book was written and what the prophet Malachi desired to accomplish, or God, I should say, through the prophet of Malachi, what he desired to accomplish, I believe has absolute uh, impact upon our culture and society today. And I believe it's going to be a blessing as we go through it, but it's going to be a blessing that's going to come through being challenged. It is a book that's not going to allow us to be comfortable. It's going to challenge us personally, spiritually, and maybe collectively as a church. The series that we've entitled the book of Malachi with, uh, the title I should say, is the word indifference. Every time I begin a new book, I read it several times. In fact, I will tell you, I've read now the book of Malachi 103 times. I don't say that to boast. I say that in the sense that I so desired to understand the heart of all that was going on at the time that this prophet spoke on behalf of God and to try to gain every ounce of richness from the book. Again, as we have encouraged you over the years, you know that on Sunday morning, we'll take a book of the Bible, we'll start at verse 1, chapter 1, and we'll go to the end of that book, and we would encourage you to read ahead. So you are aware and are familiar with the passage that we are about to discuss and engage in. And as you are reading through, have a little notebook uh, next to you and jot down any questions that you may have. Often you'll find as you're jotting those questions down, uh, as you read further into the book, a lot of those questions will get answered for you. But the ones that don't, bring with you to church. And I'd be glad to spend some time with you and to try to help answer those questions for you. But reading ahead is so important. Reading along with what we are studying on a Wednesday night as we go through the Gospel of Mark or on a Sunday morning now as we begin the book of Malachi, read ahead. Take a few minutes, Sunday morning while you're having your coffee or uh, tea or whatever beverage you prefer, and just read the, this, the passage that we are going to take. If you know we're going to be in chapter one, read chapter one. And that way you'll have a familiarity with the text. And as a result, I believe that the learning will increase exponentially. And that's really what it's all about teaching you the Word of God that you may know and grow in the grace and the knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's begin by praying. Father, we come before you this morning as we start this new book together. And Lord, first and foremost, as you have spoken to the nation of Israel there in 430 BC, Father, I pray that we would look at this book and allow it to penetrate our own hearts, to see if we may have possibly slipped into that condition of indifference towards you for one reason or another. Allow, we pray that you allow this book to jar us free from that position of indifference, that once again we would be passionately in love with you, and that, Father, we would just desire to know you further and even deeper 
each and every day. And that, Father, we would give our lives to you a living sacrifice, knowing that you are our God, our Savior, and our Lord. So, Father, we just pray that you would open up our eyes and our hearts to this incredible book this morning. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us begin by reading verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Well, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we, shall, uh, be, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. I'd like to take you back, if I may, to 605 B.C. The children of Israel have now been taken captive by the Babylonians, and they have been expelled from their land due to their irresponsible uh, handling of the land according to the covenant that Moses gave the children of Israel uh, and so forth. They did not allow the land to rest every seven years to allow it to replenish itself and so on and so forth. And now as a result, God says, fine, you won't give the land a time to rest. I'll take you out of the land to give the land a time to rest as I have prescribed. And the children of Israel went into the Babylonian captivity from the time of 605 B.C. until the time of 539 B.C. At that time, the Babylonian Empire was conquered by the Medes and the Persians. And Cyrus was now the head of the empire there in Babylon, which they made their uh, epicenter for the Medes and the Persians. And as a result, Cyrus then gave the edict to allow the children of Israel to once again return to their land. And so they did. And as they returned to the land, God encouraged his people through the prophets. He sent them Zechariah to encourage them that Zerubbabel and Joshua would be empowered by the Holy Spirit and the nation would once again be built by the Spirit and not by might and not by power. Then he wrote through the book of Haggai to encourage them to rebuild the temple for the temple had started and stopped, started and stopped and Haggai now wanted to bring it to a conclusion and to complete it so God once again could be properly worshipped among the children of Israel. At the same time, Nehemiah was either just about to finish the wall or had just completed it around Jerusalem. So the nation was once again settled and they were in their land. The temple was built and they were just waiting for God to once again renew his covenant promises to the nation of Israel. However, though, things didn't get better right away. Even though the wall was built, the temple was built, 
there was difficulties. For the Medes and the Persians still dominated over them. They didn't have the sovereignty that they hoped for. The temple, though it was rebuilt, still didn't reflect at all the temple of old. And there was a division amongst the people. The younger ones were uh, individuals were happy that they had the temple once again. The older ones, though, they were a little discouraged. It's, it's, it's like, oh, that's a, that's a temple, I guess, but it's nothing like the one we had before, you know. And what happened is that the older ones started discouraging the younger ones. The book Ezra, you can find that there. And as time went on, 25, 50 years, things continued to be difficult. For now, they were having trouble with their agricultural issues. Either there was too much water or not enough water. Kind of sounds like us, doesn't it? We don't have a nice medium, do we? It's either too much or not enough. And so the crops weren't growing the way they should. And another 25 years went by and they grew further, further discouraged. And then another 25. And then some of the older individuals who came out of the captivity started dying and the younger ones were left and they didn't see any hope in sight. Another hundred years goes by and now they have grown indifferent to God because even though they're back in their land, even though the temple is built, the wall is built, they're just not blessed once again as they once had been in their covenant with God. And so due to their discouragement, they started to grow indifferent to God. And that indifference led them to sin in various ways due to the fact that they had lost the understanding of how much God loved them. And that's where we begin this morning. I want you to take a piece of paper, if you will, and let us begin by writing these words out, if you will. The words are found in the response of the people to God's edict of, I have loved you, says the Lord, verse 2. But you say, and this is what I'd like you to write down, if you will, how have you loved us? I believe that individuals become indifferent towards God when they lose the reality of the fact of how much God loves them and what he did to demonstrate that love towards us. When I talk about indifference, I'm talking about having no particular interest in or sympathy towards, and they're unconcerned with it. But in the children of Israel's case, it went one step further. There was a frustration and a bitterness also entailed in this indifference that caused them to turn from God and to the things of this world. And an individual here today may ask the question, could indifference creep up in my life? And the answer to that question is yes, indifference can creep up in your life. And it can creep up for many different reasons. But what we will find in the children of Israel's case is that their circumstances led them to conclude that God no longer loved them. We've got the wall. We've got the temple. We're back in our land. But things are very difficult. We're not seeing the blessings of old. The temple that we do have is a mere shadow of what we once had. Is it insufficient to you, God, or do you need something more? 
And as time rolled on, day after day, week after week, month after month, they started to grow indifferent, and that indifference was due to the fact that they had forgotten how much God has actually loved them. And the reason I say that is because God begins our letter, our uh, our uh, book with the announcement as he looks into the heart of his people and says, oh, have I loved you? How have you loved us? In fact, if you go to the book of Revelation and you begin to read through the seven churches that Jesus addressed, there's in the book of Revelation, the book, it begins with in chapter two, the church of Ephesus, which was a thriving church uh, from every point of view except from God's. It had everything that it was supposed to have, and yet it was missing one great component, and that was the fact that they had left their first love. It is possible to go through the motions. It is possible to have a, uh, an organization that looks and appears to be a healthy church, and in essence, in reality, God sees that the heart of the individuals have moved away from him for one reason or another. As he said to the church in Ephesus, it's not me who has left you, it is you who have left me. And as the children of Israel have done now the exact same thing due to the difficult circumstances that they found themselves in, I often wonder if we, as like the children of Israel, do not do the same thing. That when we experience difficulties in life, do we then draw the conclusion in some way, shape, or manner that God no longer loves us. And if you feel that way today, I will tell you, you are in the right place. Because I hopefully am going to change your mind by the time we end our message this morning. One who's grown indifferent to God will often lose the heart for the things of God. Going to church doesn't really matter anymore, you know. It, you know, if other things come up and it's better, or if the bears start at noon, or you know, uh, you know church, we can just it will miss, so it doesn't matter. Well, we haven't been in two months. Well, you know, God's a God of grace, and you know, it's just kind of, you know, we don't really need to go, you know. They start losing the heart for the things of God. And then they find that they're not reading his word on a daily basis. They're not spending time in prayer on a daily basis. They have no real understanding or desire during the course of the week for fellowship with their brothers and sisters, let alone getting involved and serving in some capacity with their brothers and sisters. When they go out and about the world, often those who have grown indifferent to God no longer look at the people in the world as lost and in need of a Savior. They see them in a light of frustration and aggravation and anger and bitterness and, you know, oh, those people, they're, you know, whatever they get from God, they deserve, you know. All of these are indications that a heart has grown cold concerning God. Maybe we have grown indifferent concerning God. In one way or another, maybe we have drawn the conclusion that God has failed us or let us down in some way, and therefore his love is certainly in question, let alone his faithfulness. Craig Blasing, one of the commentators that I read, wrote this. He says, most of the hearts of the children of Israel were indifferent or resentful towards God. 
both the priests and the people were violating the stipulations of the Mosaic law regarding sacrifice, tithes, and offerings. The people's hope in God's covenant promises had dimmed as evidenced by their disobedience and interracial marriages to those who did not follow God. Divorces and just general moral oblivions to the things and the dictations of God. And so now I bring you to 430 B.C. As the prophet Malachi now begins to proclaim on behalf of God to the children of Israel who now find themselves in a place of indifference before him, they're bitter, they're frustrated, The circumstances of difficulty that they have now experienced have given them the lasting oppression that God is no longer uh, with them and therefore most certainly no longer loves them. And so we begin in verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. When God spoke to his people, Israel, he used prophets to do so. The Holy Spirit would come upon a man, be it Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, or any of the minor prophets here that we are discovering, and he would put his words in their mouth, and he would use them to speak to his people. And as a prophet of God, they were either proclaiming something to them on behalf of the Lord, or within that proclamation, there was also a prediction of what was going to happen next. So prophecy doesn't always have to be the foretelling of something that's going to happen in the future. It can simply be the proclamation of what God wants his people to hear at this time. And so he sent the prophets, Zechariah, Haggai, Amos, one of my favorites, a guy who was simply out in the farm, in his farmland, dealing with his cattle, got so frustrated with the people of Israel. He says, that's lit, Lord, I've had enough. And he goes and he starts correcting things. And God says, oh, that's Amos, I'm going to use you greatly. Just fantastic. Read Amos if you have a chance. So Malachi begins and says, I'm addressing the nation of Israel, with the oracles and the word of God, this is what God is speaking to you, and I am writing it down that you may have it, and you may refer to it in the future. As we celebrate the 500 year of the Reformation, one of the points of contention between the Protestant church and Rome was the pronunciation of this prophet's name. Rome, being Italian, wanted to call him Malachi. The Protestants wanted to call him Malachi. And so part of the Reformation was due to the fact of how we pronounce this prophet's name. I'm kidding, that's the best joke I have today. So if you're waiting for any further ones, you'll please have to join us next week. We know nothing more about Malachi than what is stated here, just that his name means my messenger. There's nothing more about the vessel in which God uses at this point just in the fact that this is the last of the Old Testament prophets in the sense until the coming of John the Baptist, which I believe is the last prophet of the Old Testament. And that being said, we have Malachi, and this will be the last time that God speaks to his people for 400 years. Until one day, an interesting individual starts proclaiming from the wilderness that he's preparing the way 
of one very unique individual. And as we move to verse 2, God, knowing the heart of his people, begins with the fundamental issue that is troubling the heart of his people. And he reassures them in an emphatic way in the Hebrew language. And he says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But anticipating the condition and the state of their heart, he understands that their response will be, how have you loved us? And I believe that you could say it this way. Oh, really? You've loved us? This is how indifferent and cynical they had become towards God. Really? You, you say that you loved us, but in, in what way have you demonstrated that love? Because they're only looking at the microcosm of their moment of difficulty, right? They're not looking through the past, last 1,500 years. They are just looking at the microcosm of the moment and determining for some reason that God no longer loves his people. And he says to them, this love that I have for you is much more than just simply affection as he will demonstrate in the manner in which he will articulate his love towards them. In this love that he has for them, it's, it's more than just affection. It's also a covenant. It's a relationship that he has to his people that they are claiming he has been unfaithful to. This covenant promise that he has made with them. Notice what the Lord says, if you will, in Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8. He says, it was not because you were the more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on. Uh, you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping you, keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I have loved you says the Lord. And they say to him, how have you loved us? Oh, really? And he goes on. Is not Esau, Esau Jacob's brother? Now he's taking them back in history to the beginning. He chose Abraham. He chose Isaac. And then Rebekah was given twins. And while she was carrying the twins, they decided to have a boxing match within her womb. And they were just going at it within her. And she cries out to the Lord and says, Oh, Lord, what is going on within me? This is crazy. This hurts, Lord. What is going on within me? And he responds that, well, there are two nations within you fighting for control. That's something a pregnant lady liked to hear, right? There's two nations within you going at it. And he said... But out of the two, the older will serve the younger. For Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. He takes him back to the very beginning. When his, in his divine sovereign election, he chose 
Jacob over Esau. Esau was born first. He had every right to inherit all of the birthright that his father were to give to him. But God had other plans. And he says, from the very beginning, I chose you because I love you. I chose to love you. Not because you warranted it or deserved it. As Paul says, before they did anything good or bad, chosen in the womb for this special covenant blessing. And the word love there means that God has accepted. The word hate there in Hebrew is also, uh, I think, adequately defined by uh, rejected. Now, it wasn't that Esau was being cursed by God, because Esau was a very blessed man. But the covenant blessing that was going to trans, you know, uh, succeed from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and then to his 12 sons, which became the 12 tribes of Israel. He says, now from the very beginning. Now, why does he take him back to the beginning? Because he wants to remind them of where they are currently at at the moment. Because now he wants to bring them to the understanding that, look, from the very day that I chose Jacob, I have been with you. I have protected you. I have always been faithful to my covenant towards you. And you simply being back in the land again is indication of that fact. And those circumstances may be difficult. And maybe the crops aren't going and the harvests aren't going the way you'd want and the temple isn't the way you want and so on and so forth. You are back in the land demonstrating that I have been with you the entire time. For I took you out to chasten you, brought you into Babylon, and then I released you from Babylon and you came back to your land just as you went into Egypt and I took you out by the hand of Moses out of that slavery into a redemption as a, a free people under my reign. He's bringing them back to history. And when we come to a point in our Christian lives where we look at our current circumstances and begin to draw all kinds of overreaching conclusions, let us take a moment of pause to consider, is this truly reflective of the history of my walk with the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is this just a temporary thing that I'm going through that is causing me to doubt and to conclude in the way that I am? I mean, when they asked, oh, really, Lord, how have you loved us? For look at our temple, look at our farming, look at the difficulties we're having with our neighbors. And even though we're back in the land, it seems like you are so far from us because we are still going through hardships as individuals and don't appear to be receiving the blessings of the covenant that you have made with us. It would be easy again to look at the children of Israel and say, well, how could you forget all that God has done for you? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, his 12 brothers, Joseph, bringing you into Egypt, out of Egypt, into your own land. At that point, you didn't believe God. So Joshua had to take you in the wilderness with Moses for 40 years and you wandered around in circles, just miles away from the land in which God had for you. But because you didn't have the faith to walk into there, God had to chasten you once again. 
Then Joshua brings them into the land and establishes them. And then they asked for a king. They were given Saul and they found out what a train wreck that was. And then they gave him David and said, from David, all the world you know, is going to be blessed as Abraham and so forth. And David's throne, one will sit on the throne forever from his lineage, of course, speaking of Jesus Christ. They went into Babylon because they had once again disobeyed the Lord. God brought them out of Babylon to show that his hand was still upon them and still yet they questioned him. So I ask you this morning, before we are too quick to look down upon the nation of Israel, wondering how they could have ever questioned God's love at that moment, yet we so quickly forget God's love when circumstances come upon us that we don't anticipate or expect. Due to sickness or poor health, the loss of a loved one, marital problems, loss of a job or insufficient income, bankruptcy or failure of a business or loss of reputation or failure to be recognized or appreciated. And any one of those circumstances seem to be so traumatic that we then think to ourselves, God, you no longer love me because I'm experiencing such things. Now, this is the nature of human beings. This is what we do. And God would often then say to us, remember, go back. My wife has so diligently kept a prayer journal over the last 20 years of our church's existence. And in times where I'm discouraged or stuff, she often will read a page and remind me of how, remember when we were here and we were praying and we didn't know how God was going to work things out and yet he did? Oh, I do remember that. That's, that's really encouraging. Uh, do you remember when, you know, we were going to do this and we didn't know how, we didn't know how God was going to bring all these things about, but we knew he was leading us to do it. And then God showed his faithfulness so many times to us. And then he brought about exactly what we thought he would. Oh, yes, I remember that too. Next time you are so discouraged and even contemplate the idea that God no longer loves you, take a moment of pause, calm down, relax, and look back to everything God has done in your life and see if that testimony doesn't refute the feelings of the moment. So the Lord responds to them. It is not uh, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. I received him, I accepted him, I chose him. But Esau I have hated, I rejected him for this covenant blessing. And I have laid waste his hill countries and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. What does he mean by this? What we have to understand from history is that Edom, the Edomites, those were the people that followed Edom, meaning followed from him in an ancestral line. They, like the children of Israel, were both carried off into Babylon roughly at the same time. And yet only one came back and reestablished their land. The Edomites did not. And God's saying, look, the wickedness that they have shown you, for they had been the uh, adversary of Israel from the very beginning. In the form of the Amalekites, they uh, attacked the rear and the weak of the procession out of uh, Egypt and so forth, all the way till this time, the Edomites were a constant thorn in the side of the Israelites. 
And God says, look, to show and to demonstrate that I am with you, that I have chosen you because I have chosen to love you. And I have given you my covenant blessing. And as a result, you are now back in your land. All they had to simply do for a moment is to consider, wait a minute, we're back where where God would have us. That's a miracle in and of itself. One of the greatest miracles of God's faithfulness was the restoration of Israel in 1948. Just as he said he would, so he did. I was with you, he said. I protected you. I regathered you compared to the, evil, uh, uh, to the Edomites. And therefore, please know that I love you. And if, verse 4, the Edomites say, or Edom says, we are shattered, but we'll rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear it down. They will uh, be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. He's angry at them for their treatment of the children of Israel over the years, decades, and so forth. He brought them to nothing, even though they did attempt to build two or three times. They built once, the Persians came in and knocked it all down. They built a second type, and the Nabiathans came in and tore it all down to the point now where they're no longer existent, just as God says it was. So taking them back into history, rediscovering the fact that he had uh, elected them from all the peoples of the world because they were the least of all the peoples of the world. He says, you should be able to look around, verse 5, your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. It wasn't the fact that God was only working here, he was working in the whole entire world. The ruins of the Edomites at that time and in the time to come would be a reminder to Israel of God's love for them and God's work in the world. God's election. His election for covenant blessing. The sovereignty of God. Paul uses this, and I believe that in Romans chapter 9, he is not talking about the individuals, he's talking about the nations in which are represented by the two individuals, how Israel has been chosen and the Edomites were not. God's election for the special blessing of covenant promise. I believe that we become indifferent to God when things become difficult in our lives and we forget how he has loved us. So let us conclude this morning by being reminded of how God has loved us. An individual did a very interesting study and discovered as he went through Genesis to Revelation, he discovered at different times and places when the children of Israel doubted the love of God or when a Christian doubts the love of God, some of the symptoms that arise in the life of the believer or in the life of the the individual who's there in Israel, these were the symptoms of an individual who began to doubt the love of God in their lives. I personally do not believe that the love of God can be emphasized enough in our Christian faith. I believe that the love of God is something that all of us must understand, and it will allow us to walk within that deep, abiding relationship with God. 
but for a moment here, let me take you through some of these symptoms. The individuals who had doubted the love of God found themselves in a perpetual place of anxiety, a pit of fear, a constant distrust. They walked in a despair and a depression. Anger often filled their hearts, the individual says, that was accompanied with bitterness and a host of other negative feelings and attributes, all simply because they were doubting God's love towards them. As he concluded, he said, doubting God's love can also lead to sin. The people of Israel doubted God's love and his concern for how they lived. As a result, they ignored his law and lived in sin. Thankfully, there is no reason for us to doubt God's love. He openly expresses his love throughout his word. The love of God. From the very beginning, it was always God's intention that we love him. He desired that love from us. Notice with me in Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 9. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your might. And these words, speaking of what he has just said, and these words that I command you today shall be on your hearts. That's interesting. And you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as a frontlet between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What, write what specifically? That we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and with all of our might. This is what God desires, a love relationship with us. And once we understand that, we understand how much God loves us, we then in turn draw to him in love. Notice what Jesus said in Luke's gospel. Very interesting. In Luke's gospel, chapter 10, verse 25 through 28. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. This is Jesus saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Meaning, what do you understand the essence of it to be? That's what he is saying. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he, that is Jesus, said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. How important is love in the dynamic relationship with God between him and us? It's everything. This is what God desires. And when he saw that his people were questioning this love due to their circumstances, he needed to address it immediately, to affirm it once again to them. Why? It's imperative that you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, know how God loves us. Not only how much, but in the manner in which he demonstrated that love to us. Why is this so important? Because our love for him is predicated on his love towards us initially. 
For 1 John 4.19, John writes, we love because he first loved us. So before I can understand how to love God and to truly fall in love with him, I must first understand how he loved me. It's huge. Absolutely imperative. So let me help you and remind you of the manner in which he showed us this love. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whenever I am confronted with circumstances today and those circumstances would challenge my understanding of God's love for me and move me possibly to doubting that love towards me, I'll take a moment to step back Looked back in history and said, how did God show his love to me? Jesus Christ went to the cross, right? He died and rose again. That's fixed in history. Nothing can change that fact, right? So therefore, all I have to do is remember that he loved me and showed me in this manner through the cross, And so when I doubt it because of my circumstances, I just look back and say, you know, he loved me from the cross. He still loves me today because he chose to love me and lavish me with this love because even Romans 5, 8 tells us, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I don't understand it. I don't know what God saw in me in any way, shape, or form that would bring about his love for me. He just chose to do it. And he demonstrated his love. And he showed me this love through through the cross, through Christ. And each and every day as I grow now in my relationship with him and read his word, I am reassured over and over again of the depth and the breadth of the love that he has for me climaxing with these words. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, he asks, as Paul writing to the Romans in 835. Shall tribulations, the difficulties that we experience in life, the troubles, the trials, or the distresses, or the persecutions, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword. He says, no, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us, For he then says, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depths, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't care what you are going through, God still loves you. That's what he wants us to know. You and I need to be individuals who have embraced the idea that God loves us and allow that love that he has shown us and demonstrated to us to reflect back to him and love him unconditionally and say, Lord, take all of me. Laying yourself as a living sacrifice before him, saying, Lord, take all of me. So if you began the sermon and you were following my instructions, and you wrote on a piece of paper, how have you loved us, question mark? 
And maybe you're in a place today and you don't know how you'll get back to that love relationship with God or once again be assured of God's love. You think, oh, I don't know how I'll ever get back to that place where I'm assured of God's love. It seems so distant, so far away. It is right before you today. And instead of looking at God and responding to God when he says, I have loved you, instead of responding to God and saying, how have you loved us? Question mark. I want you now to write underneath that phrase, this phrase. This is how close you are. How you have loved us, exclamation point. How you have loved us. For you have predestined us before the foundations of the world to be your kids. I don't get it, but I'm so thankful for it. And you did it because you love me. You came and you died on my behalf to demonstrate that you love me. As I look back through my walk with you, you have kept every promise faithfully to me because you have loved me. You promise that you will never leave me nor forsake me. And as I look back through the course of history, as you tried to do with the children of Israel, you do with us, you have us look back and said, you know what? You've never left me. You've never forsaken me. You've always been there for me. And therefore, if I look forward, I can be assured of this fact that you're coming back for me. And after considering those five points, look at that sentence again. How you have loved us, exclamation point. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whomsoever shall believe in him shall not die but have everlasting life. If we are going to move from that position of indifference, we once again need to discover the, the radical, awesome love of God. And therefore, we need to love him. We love, need to love our neighbors as ourselves and our brothers and sisters in Christ accordingly, that the whole world may know that we are truly of him. If we are going to be a church that is healthy, we must love him in a radical way because he loved us in such a radical way. And then we need to love one another as he has loved us, that the whole world may know that we are truly of him. And this all begins with this simple understanding of how God has loved you. And so walk away today, not questioning God's love. Oh, how have you loved us? Question mark. No, Lord, how you have loved us, exclamation point.